As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. <coughs> Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. <clears throat> the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So, give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone, and a very happy Easter to you all. Shall we pray as we come to look at this passage? Thank you, Father, for Easter Sunday. We ask that you will help us to grasp its significance for us today, and we ask it in the name of our risen Victorious Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, did any of you see the final of The Voice last night? I have to confess I did uh, watch uh, a bit of it. Uh, in one section, you may, have, uh, may be able to recall the section where they were taking uh, sort of phone-in questions uh, from viewers. And one guy called uh, Adam uh, had a question... Uh, Rita, one of the voice coaches, uh, put it to Will I Am, one of the other coaches, uh, the American, uh, I think he's a rapper, is that right? I don't know very much. (laughs) Anyway, the question was, if you could choose any superhero's power, which one would you have? And he replied, I would choose control over particles. Well, there was sight, there was a kind of stunned reaction in the studio, and, and Rita said, what, you mean like body particles? And he said, no, particles, things that make everything, uh, you know, things that make atoms, uh, which was received by further uh, incredulous silence in the studio audience. Um, maybe they couldn't cope with uh, uh, this pop star talking about particle physics late on a Saturday night, uh, or maybe they were stunned uh, by what he was actually asking for, uh, which is basically the power of God, the power to control control over particles, the particles that make everything. Well, what's that got to do with Easter? Well, it's at the heart of the claim of Easter that someone who lived on earth did in fact have control over particles, so much so that he rose from the dead. This claim has been from the beginning at the heart of the Christian good news. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Christians proclaim it everywhere, don't they? But I want us to face it squarely uh, this morning. Is this claim true? What's the evidence that he did rise from the dead? This question, is Easter true? is not a question our culture often asks. Professor Norman Anderson was a former professor of law at the University of London. He put it like this. Most people have not the slightest desire to attack the Easter message. So this week, various of our politicians, of course, have been saying nice things uh, about it. He goes on. To them, it is a beautiful story, full of spiritual meaning. Why worry, then, whether it is a literal fact? But he says we missed the point. Either it is infinitely more than a beautiful story, 
or else it is infinitely less. If it is true, then it is the supreme fact of history. It means, doesn't it, Jesus really is God and really is in charge. And he says, to fail to adjust one's life to its implications means irreparable loss. But if it is not true, if Christ be not risen, then the whole of Christianity is a fraud, foisted on the world by a company of consummate liars, or at best, deluded simpletons. Well, this is what the Apostle Paul said as well. Remember, when he wrote to the Corinthians about 25 years after these events, he said, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So Christianity stands or falls on whether Jesus was raised or not. But what does it actually mean to claim that he rose? That might seem like an obvious question. A dead man came back to life again. But the claim made about Christ is actually far greater than that. I wonder if you realise that. We need to understand what resurrection meant for the people of Israel. Now, unlike the ancient pagans, the Jews, at least most of them, believed that one day in the future, the physical creation, which has been marred by our human sin and our rejection of God, would be remade and perfected. They believed that all the dead would be raised, some to condemnation, and those in the right standing with God would have a new life forever. Death would be destroyed forever. It's a uniquely Jewish belief, this belief in the resurrection to come. It comes from the Old Testament in places like Isaiah and Ezekiel. None of the other people of Jesus' day believed in this physical hope. For people like the Greeks and the Romans, death meant a one-way ticket to the spirit world. If they believed in life after death, it was shadowy uh, and spirity, if I could put it like that. But the people of Israel believed in a glorious resurrection. In fact, you could summarise their belief more accurately as they believed in life after life after death this physical resurrection. Well, the first Christians, being Jews, believed this as well. But they added this remarkable claim that one person has already undergone this resurrection. One person has already entered into this physical life of the age to come, risen physically, never to die again. Now, no Jews before Jesus' day ever believed that they wouldn't have remotely considered that someone could undergo the resurrection now. It's only a future thing. So the first Christians, as they burst onto the ancient world, they were proclaiming a unique new belief. It was totally Jewish in believing in a physical resurrection, but it was totally Christian, if I can put it that way, in believing that Jesus has already done it himself. So, what on earth made them take on this extraordinary new belief, one which they were willing to die for? Well, let's have a look at Matthew. 
He's one of the six Christian writers in the New Testament who have documented eyewitness claims that Jesus had risen. He writes about 30 years later, and in the account we've read, we're not going to look at every detail, but we're going to chart through the reasons he and others were convinced that Jesus really rose. There's four steps uh, to Matthew's argument. First, after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. The Gospel accounts all describe how Jesus died. They give lots of interesting little details to show that it happened. Uh, And even non-Christian Jewish uh, and Roman writers of the time also record his death under Pontius Pilate. But then all the early Christian documents want to emphasise that he was buried as well. So Matthew uh, says from verse 53, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself been a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. So there's Matthew's account. Uh, It's pretty matter-of-fact and unlegend-like. And Matthew uh, and Mark, Luke and John also add that Joseph had been a member of the Jewish ruling council that had condemned Jesus to death. But Joseph hadn't agreed with the decision. And in fact, he was a secret disciple. And out of reverence for Jesus, Joseph does the amazing thing of making available his own pre-prepared stone tomb for his own burial, uh, and he gives it uh, for Jesus' burial. It's a remarkable act of honouring him. It's a remarkable risk as well for him to do this. It's highly unlikely, if you think about it, that Christians would fabricate that a prominent member of the Jewish court that condemned Jesus went on and did this. Such a story, in fact, could easily be denied. And also, it really strikingly fits with Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus would be assigned a grave with the rich. Well, as Matthew's first piece of evidence, after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. Then, secondly... The following Sunday, the tomb was found empty by some women followers. Matthew records first some important background information. Let me just read a bit again from 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. That's the background, but on Easter Sunday... When the women went to the tomb, it was empty. They came in the morning to anoint the body with spices, but verse 2 says there was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. Then the angel said to the women, the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. 
come and see the place where he lay. Well, I wonder if you noticed what I think is the big surprise here. This tomb was thoroughly sealed and guarded, as secure as it could be, humanly speaking. But when the angel came down and opened it, it was empty. Jesus has already got out. He's got out without disturbing the guards, without breaking the seal. And as he will do in later accounts in John and Luke, he's passed through the walls. He had the ability to really control particles. This is saying Jesus' resurrection then is not to be understood as a resuscitation. It's not that he's just revived his body uh, and lives on in the same way that he did before. No, the new life that he has is transformed. It's physical, but his body is gloriously more powerful. That's the claim of the resurrection. But notice three things about this uh, empty tomb. First, again, although the description is dramatic, it's related simply uh, and plainly. It's not like a legend, is it? In fact, we have got legendary accounts of the resurrection uh, to compare with the Gospels. There are writings called apocryphal uh, Gospels, and it is actually worth having a read of some of them to see how totally different they are. One bit that I read this week of something that's called the Gospel of Peter, uh, which uh, the evidence is that it certainly wasn't written by Peter. But in this uh, account, Jesus and the angels come out of the tomb together, uh, and they're described as being as tall as the heavens. They're like giants. And then this cross follows them out of the tomb, and this cross starts to speak. It's very fanciful, uh, quite unlike the actual Gospels that we have that are plain, unembellished. In fact, exactly what you'd expect uh, if they were eyewitness testimony. But there's a second thing about this empty tomb. In first century Palestine, a woman's testimony would not stand up in their courts. It was considered second class So if you were to invent a story about an empty tomb, you would not have the first witnesses, the first witnesses of the resurrection, as women. So because it is so unlikely, it's a pointer, isn't it, to what Matthew says as being what actually happened. It's not something you would invent. But then thirdly, Matthew records an early Jewish alternative story that the disciples stole The body. We see down in 28, verse 15, the soldiers were given money and were told to go and spread the story. And he says, And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And I think that's quite interesting, isn't it? It means that Jesus' enemies didn't deny that the tomb was empty. They came up with an alternative explanation. It's a pretty desperate story, isn't it? Because it means they've got to accept this embarrassing idea that a bunch of Galilean fishermen came and outwitted uh, professional Roman soldiers to get him out of the tomb. It's very unlikely, really, isn't it, when you think about it? Well, others have, over time, come up with other non-supernatural explanations for the empty tomb. You may have heard of the one that the Jewish authorities stole his body. But, of course, in a few short weeks... Jerusalem is ablaze uh, with the news that people have seen him alive. And of course, they could have just squashed this in an instant by displaying the body for all to see. 
Some have said the women got the wrong tune. But all of the accounts are very keen to mention these angels and the place where he lay. And John's account in particular mentions the grave clothes inside. And there was something about the way they were laid out. It looked as if the body had just come through them. Uh, And it was that, seeing that, that John says persuaded him. Others have suggested uh, in the last couple of hundred years that Jesus didn't really die. But that would mean having to believe a number of very unlikely things. First, that the Roman death squad uh, made a blunder, didn't do the job properly. Uh, Second, uh, of course, John's account uh, puts in that Jesus was skewered uh, with a spear in his side and water and blood poured out. Separation of fluids indicating that he was really dead. But if Jesus didn't die, it means that we're to believe uh, that he survived this Roman flogging and crucifixion, and that after three days in the cool of a tomb, uh, had the strength to get up, to neatly unwind his grave clothes and lay them back down as if he'd, not done, as if he, as if he'd just gone through them, to roll away this heavy tomb, uh, to get past the guards, and then to travel around the countryside, persuading people that he'd conquered death forever. Rather, I would suggest... Uh, that he would need an intensive care unit at that point. Matthew's account of the empty tomb has a ring of truth uh, about it. It's better than any of the alternatives. But then third, on multiple occasions, different people experienced appearances of Jesus alive bodily. Let me quote the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians again. This is chapter 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brother, then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So from our six writers in the New Testament, we've got multiple independent reports that he appeared at different times, to different people, and in different places. Each gospel makes it clear that he was physical. So in Matthew, did you notice the women clasp his feet Uh, In John and Luke, he eats with them. Each gospel also makes clear that he's not only physical, but transformed in his new body. He passes through barriers, he travels great distances in no time. But, like with the empty tomb, people have advocated some non-supernatural alternative explanations. And the principal one here is that the disciples must have had some kind of collective abnormal grief reaction included things like hallucinations uh, and delusions. Well, as you might guess, as a former psychiatrist, I find this story, this theory, interesting, uh, but ultimately unpersuasive. For a start, you wouldn't expect the same kind of hallucinations to happen to over 500 people uh, on lots of different occasions at different times of the day. Not all of the people, of course, would be sharing the same intense grief of the twelve. I think it's quite interesting actually that Paul mentions Jesus' brother James 
We know from the Gospels that James wasn't a believer in Jesus while Jesus was alive. But later he went on to become the chief elder of the Jerusalem church. Something happened to change him, and Paul suggests it was a resurrection appearance. Also, these appearances are recorded as only occurring in a 40-day period after Easter Sunday, and then they stopped. Now, abnormal grief reactions to terrible trauma, where people can't accept what has happened, or where people can't sort of believe it, uh, believe what has happened, they normally take much longer to subside. Uh, Terrible experiences like hallucinations or or flashbacks, they may continue for a number of years uh, in some cases. They don't just stop after 40 days to be replaced by joy, which is what is recorded. In fact, in abnormal uh, grief, often these things are delayed uh, and don't start straight away. But this is what the accounts uh, tell us, uh, the appearances of a physical risen Jesus to various people uh, at various times. That's the third step in the evidence. And then finally, the disciples believed that he rose. The early Christians were convinced and went out telling everyone that he rose, despite, humanly speaking, having every reason not to. Some years ago, I watched a BBC TV documentary about the resurrection, and um, the presenter, he was called Mark Tully, was was sort of sceptical, really. Um, But at the end of the programme, he had to conclude by saying that something amazing, even miraculous, must have happened. Something must have happened to convert these simple fishermen into the most effective missionary movement the world has known. What else explains the explosive rise uh, of Christianity in a hostile environment? What explains their zeal? What explains their passion, their willingness uh, to face death rather than deny belief in this? Just think for a moment. If the resurrection appearances were just part of some kind of post-traumatic stress, how does that enable them to be so transformed, so full of joy and so functionally effective? Or if they made it all up, would they die for something they knew was a lie? Surely under the pressure of persecution, somebody, somebody would have cracked and said it was a hoax. And especially think as Jesus made such a big point, didn't he, about always telling the truth. Look, there was every human reason not to believe in this claim. Their leader was dead. The Jews of the day were not expecting a dying Messiah, let alone a rising one. Uh, Studies have been done, actually, of this period of time. Between about BC 150 and AD 150, there were several uh, Jewish messiahs Uh, that were killed. And uh, studies show that the people who had followed these false messiahs, when they were killed, either just sort of gave up belief in a messiah at all, uh, or they found uh, another possible one uh, to latch onto. What they absolutely didn't do was go around claiming that their dead messiah had risen again. Second, Jesus was found guilty by Israel's elders and was hung on a cross. Now in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, it clearly says that those condemned like this are shown to be under the curse of God. 
And third, as I was saying at the beginning, the Jews believed in a general resurrection at the end of the age, not individuals doing it before then. So it means that only something utterly earth-shattering could have produced this new Christian movement. And I believe that Matthew is documenting uh, the reasons why it came into being. Just look down at verse 18 towards the end and we see this explanation for the the way these disciples are transformed into this missionary movement. Verse 18, then Jesus came to the disciples and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is the best explanation for these things? Let's summarise. Only Jews believed in the resurrection. This couldn't have come from any other source. But no Jews believed you could be raised in advance of the resurrection. So I submit that the only explanation for this claim arising is that Jesus really did die, that the tomb really was empty on Easter Sunday, that the risen Jesus really did appear to his disciples and commission them to go and spread the good news. Nothing else has the explanatory power to cover all the evidence. The non-supernatural alternatives that we've briefly looked at are fanciful at best. And in fact, I think at the end of the day, the only reason why someone might hold on to one of those alternatives, those implausible alternatives, is that they do not believe that something supernatural could possibly uh, happen. But if you're prepared to consider that there is a real God who is in charge of the universe, then it's not implausible that he might have control over particles that he might be able to raise his son from the dead. Indeed, if a man went around like Jesus, claiming to be God, making claims that the Jews would consider blasphemous, and then claimed to go and die to save us from our sins, then he had to be raised from the dead. Because if he wasn't raised, then it would be shown that he was false. So the evidence forces us inexorably to believe the glorious news Christ is risen he is risen indeed hallelujah it is the supreme fact of history to fail to adjust our lives around him means irreparable loss but to turn and trust in him the risen lord means unassailable everlasting gain shall we pray We'll just take a moment of quiet to reflect on these things and then I'll pray the collect for Easter Day.
Lord of all life and power, who through the mighty resurrection of your Son overcame the old order of sin and death to make all things new in him. Grant that we, being dead to sin and alive to you in Jesus Christ, may reign with him in glory. To whom with you and the Holy Spirit be praise and honour, glory and might, now and in all eternity. Amen.